We are sure you are all already fed up with the constant updates on the number of cases and deaths of the coronavirus around the world. This is why we will not give you this information that you can find basically in every media outlet. Today we will do something different. We will discuss how the world will look like after the disease is tackled. Hello and welcome to the special episode of Civis Pachem. Today we're going to discuss the future of the world after coronavirus and all this fun thing that comes with it. Yeah, well, today we're recording in a uh, different situation that we usually would. We are unfortunately all locked down in our homes here in Berlin. So we're recording this remotely. So this is where probably you'll hear differences in quality uh, than different quality than usual, I guess. Yeah, but I guess uh, we are all, we all are so bored that it's nice to record something and just to think about <laughs> humanity and the world at this vulnerable moment, so to speak. Oh yeah, totally, man, totally. So yeah, we haven't recorded something for a while because of this um, well lockdown that we're on, but we're back and recording. Yeah, it's been, I guess, two weeks uh, since we recorded our last episode, but so many things had, uh, has, uh, so many things have changed, you know, drastically. Yep, true. And, uh, you know, two weeks ago we just discussed the prospects of uh, this disease in Iran, I guess, maybe in Italy, and that's it. And now we have this uh, hysteria, hysteria all over the world, you know, in every European country. Well, now we can say for sure that this is an event that will change history. So let's discuss how it will influence the future of international politics. Yeah, and for me it's a really interesting question because, I mean, the first, of, first of all, I guess this is very hard epistemological question, how you, how you can understand such things because, you know, it's not something that we usually observe when it comes to international relations. It's not like a state influencing other states. It's actually very strange, you know, disease, but at the same time, this disease only makes sense when it actually infects people and stuff like this. Um, so what do you think about this? How we should think about, you know, uh, in a, when we want to apply this, even in our studies? It is super hard to tell because in the history of mankind, we didn't have such a situation. Well, we had different diseases, of course, that totally uh, changed the world. But this is the first time that we have a once a pandemic. And the se second thing, this is the first time that we have an epidemic in the times of social media and fast information, which totally changes how people perceive yeah. the virus. Uh, true, this is very true, and a lot of people now realize, you know, sitting, I guess, from home, that they can actually do their work from home, probably, and this is a very big boost to all online services, all delivery services, everything, like, that been actually invented, you don't know, 10 years ago, but now it kind of, it's on its peak because of the coronavirus, and... Yeah, that is true. Yeah. And so maybe maybe let's um, let's discuss this this way that maybe let's start with the positive things that may come out of this uh, 
Mm. Epidemic. But let's not be super pessimistic at first. Let's discuss the positives, maybe. What do you say? Uh, positives, I guess, for people, first of all, it's a, it's a good moment to, you know, recharge their batteries and to just think about their lives, maybe, and just to understand, like, just to uh, stop for a moment and, you know, from this all this hustle and bustle that we all experience now everyday life and just, you know, try to be yourself this time when you're alone and just to to think about your everyday routine, what you do, and stuff like this. Maybe this psychologically, that's a good thing. Hmm. Yeah, I, I guess you're right. And uh, many people say that uh, the current crisis is actually good for our planet. Well, I guess this is such an arguable question because so many people are going to lose their jobs and it's such a... I mean, you couldn't compare this uh, in such terms that, of course, it's it's good for climate, but in terms of, uh, yeah, it's going to be uh, helpful for, you know, climate in in, in in the scope of a few next month, but people are going to suffer a lot. You know, this you also should take into account. And I guess when people think in this category that it's good for climate, even if it's bad for the whole humanity and people uh, in general, this is like some kind of you know, eco-fascism or something like this. This is true, but I mean, let's look at this from a, a bit different perspective. Uh, so basically, all around Europe and basically all around the world, planes are not flying, they're grounded. Uh, let's let for now not talk about the economic impact of this, but people who want to travel, if they can, if they're not curfewed, they will resort to different ways of transportation, which are usually more ecological, that being, for example, trains. Right now, uh, if politicians who are fighting the crisis, if they move around the country, they use trains most of the time, uh, or buses or whatever, because planes are grounded. And as you can, as uh, probably most of you know, planes are the means of transport which pollutes the air as much yeah. as they can. And um, yeah, and also the heavy industry is closed most of the time, so there's less CO2 emissions into the atmosphere. Um, yeah. Yeah, I understand. I understand the scope, but I still think that you could not, you know, put it forward and say it's, you know, it's good for ecology. Yeah, but I mean, in terms of if you if you have these baskets and you have the basket like with pluses, you can definitely say it's a, it's a big plus. Um, but I would say, you know, people are going to suffer more and the consequences, like economical consequences of, and also oh, yeah. people, totally people true. actually dying. And this is another point. So I guess I saw this, I saw this argument, uh, you know, a lot of people posting on Instagram and Facebook and stuff like this, but I guess it's some kind of eco-fascism in terms of you actually prioritize climate over people and don't think about people, but let's think about climate. I don't think climate is uh, is uh, so important at this particular moment in our history. Yeah, I, I agree with you, but um, the same argument I said, like people traveling with trains, I guess maybe when the, this thing is over and people are di not dying anymore, people who are forced to travel by trains, they might be like, oh, actually traveling by train isn't that bad. And maybe I will take a train next time, even when I have the option to, to take a plane. Yes, also true, but at the same this time... This is the same thing, this is the same thing as remote work, right? We had this option of working remotely for a couple of years already in most, you know, like, uh, yeah. office jobs. And people did not do this, and they do this now because they're forced to, and it actually works. But I guess, uh, uh, travel companies, um, avia companies, uh, 
It's so much risk right now. They just like people losing jobs. Oh, they are basically they're basically a bankrupt. risk of yeah. dying. Yeah. Yeah. And it's actually interesting. I wonder what the, for example, in the EU, what the uh, EU will do to save the air industry. Will they do this? Because, well, the air industry employs a lot of people. Yeah. And the European policy towards uh, air travel was already very, uh, well, very soft, I must say. So the European uh, countries will be fostering air travel. So, for example, jet fuel is one of the only fuels that mm -hmm. are not taxed. In the European Union, uh, yeah, that's yeah, that's a good question. How they're going to tackle this problem? But uh, I guess it's in question. This question goes to economy by and large because you have so many people losing their jobs, and then you know governments uh, should think about how we can protect these people. And I guess there are not so many options. Either you should give them money directly if you're a rich country. Of course, it's not. It's not. Uh, it's not a solution for everyone, but uh, they discuss it in the U.S. particularly. And what do you think? How do you feel about this? How we can protect those people? And I mean, politicians in general. Well, I think the only possible option is to do bailouts of companies that lose money because of this lockdown. I mean, what are some governments are doing now? For example, if they have uh, airlines that are parts basically owned by the government, they employ those airlines to evacuate citizens from mm -hmm. different parts of the world so they still have something to do those airlines but uh but well <laughs> this will not last forever so the only possible way that i can see is just basically financial support and bailouts of such companies which is not unheard of oh, yeah. well, you know in the u.s it happens all the time when a huge industry has problems the government will bail them out because you know because it's vital for the economy. Yeah, but this, uh, I guess, this crisis is not even comparable to you know the crisis in late twenties and uh, depression. It's even way worse for American economy and yes, subsequently for totally. like uh, world economy. Uh, and everyone is freaking out about this because I mean, and they have the right to do this because I guess we still don't understand uh, at this moment because it's only the start of the pandemic, and you know. Uh, it's only the beginning of these drastic events uh, that we would observe in next in following month. And for me, it's just very interesting. And I guess we still couldn't understand how it's going to affect us economically and in what particular way. I would say so. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, it's actually interesting how to, um, when you look at the financial reaction of the uh, well, of the markets, for example, do you remember in January when we had a legit threat of a major war breaking out? Yeah, the yeah, but... stock exchange basically did not react at all. Yeah, and compared to the current crisis, and look at the oh. New York Stock Exchange, it's it's madness. Yeah, it's 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 worst it's, it's worst numbers like in history, you know. And it's only the beginning. You never like what's going to happen next. You never know. But at the same time, you see all these big corporations, uh, IT corporation, they're earning so much money, and they're gonna be, um, they're gonna, and they're gonna profit so much from this crisis. It's also an interesting question that you still see, you know, this division of not labor but this capital that you have, this you know, modern capital earned by you know selling people online goods and stuff, and they're gonna profit the most, and they're gonna be kings uh, after this crisis. 
But you see, actually, I read a very interesting article uh, where the author said that the virus uh, placed the citizen above the consument. So basically, right now, people uh, tend to listen to their governments, and those governments tend to put the citizens above the capital. Don't you agree? Especially in Europe. Oh, yeah. I think this is the case. And you see a lot of solidarity, you know, uh, the call for solidarity, so people can help each other in this particular moment. And this whole consuming, you know, situation that now is happening with supply and demand of products like toilet paper and stuff like this, this is actually interesting to observe. But definitely markets are not prepared, not ready for this shock, you know. It's, it's, True. it's impossible to predict. So, Vava, but what do you think are the lessons uh, that we they're going to have from this crisis and from this pandemic for the humanity in general? Well, maybe I, I could put forward the theory that uh, the way people think about uh, capitalism may change. People will realize that the market, that the free market that does not work in times of crisis. Yeah. Maybe people will tend to uh, be supportive of government intervention in the economy because let's be let's be honest here without government intervention and the current crisis we will already be in a post-apocalyptic situation with people ransacking the shops and probably fightings and and such stuff so maybe that's a lesson that people will take out of the of the crisis okay yeah i see uh for me i think uh now we are going to take seriously any kind of maybe further threats for humanity because this this scenario of you know global pandemic that kills so many people was so unrealistic you know 10 years ago 20 years ago i guess and now we just true. we see that the world is so vulnerable you know this chain of supply and demand is so vulnerable to any kind of crisis but you know the pandemic is only one of like crises that actually can occur and then you have so many things that could also happen um, and you have you know, the, the possibility of nuclear war, uh, of any kind of conflict between big states fighting for like resources and stuff like this. Yeah, um, that is true. And it's totally real because I guess we... Uh, and you also see how the, the whole situation, the world situation reconfigures itself because from now on you see the US is definitely just busy with its own business and it doesn't really want to interfere in any kind of part of the world to help some other countries. It's just like basically uh, say that like we're doing our business, you're doing your business, you don't, you, like, you don't, we don't care about the world. I mean, they also see how the, the US loses its positions. That is true. And uh, yeah, and what you said, people did not take the ideas of threats seriously up to this moment. I mean, if you were saying, let's say uh, that you are afraid of a nuclear war or some major disaster, people will be like, oh, stop watching sci-fi yeah. movies, right? Stop watching action movies. It's just, you know, it's not realistic. And now people might take such threats seriously. Yeah, because it's just a sign. I mean, it's still, it's still you know, crisis that we can pull through. It's not something that's so 
um, uh, it's, it's, it's not such a big calamity that you can tell or can destroy the whole world. I mean, it's still pandemic that has low mortality rates and it's still fine. But I guess this question also with the further pandemics, how you're going to, you should have some authority, for example, in China to close these markets in order to guarantee that this is not going to happen any, uh, in the future, for example. Yeah, but well, we cannot, China cannot be forced to regulate their food markets. Well, true, but because of the world is so globalized and so interconnected, you see how you know something that occurs in China can impact the world so dramatically. Yeah, this is we live in the times of globalization, which which basically led to the situation that we have currently. Yeah. Um, so maybe let's discuss a different thing. So for a couple of years already, we have been noticing crisis of democracies all over the world. We have seen democratic countries becoming slightly more authoritarian and the uh, basically overall trust in democracy all over the world mm -hmm. was fading. And do you think that the current pandemic will affect the trust in democracy and maybe boost the crisis of democracy that we see today. Do you think so? Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's not just about democratic society uh, as it is, but just about like our values, uh, our values of transparency. And you actually see that, you know, in order to track, in order to um, curb pandemic, you should, you know, track people who contacted with infected people. You should uh, have some kind of surveillance uh, systems. You should all have all this stuff in order to prevent further scenarios in, in the future, like kind of similar scenarios in the future. And of course, this puts this idea of democracy. It's, uh, democracy is very vulnerable when it comes to such events. Because That's it's true. And especially when it comes to some states that are not very united, even Germany, for example. Uh, you know, it's so like it was so hard, I guess, to come to conclusion what to do with this situation, just because the Germany is so like disunited, so to speak. There are so many ways of approaching things in different regions. Yeah, um, totally. And you know, people now have an example. Uh, they see China, who is an authoritarian state, and China. Yeah. Uh, they employed such drastic measures to uh, to tackle the virus and yeah. you have to say they were successful even though it started in China and they it looked like the situation would be getting out of control they employed totalitarian measures that nobody would ever do in Europe and they managed to tackle the virus and now people will have also the example of Italy for example a democratic state that yeah. completely failed in containing the disease and now people will be like okay so if democracy is so good why do authoritarian states do better when yeah. a crisis hits? And what I wanted to tell, uh, I guess the question of values is very important because it's not just authoritarian states. If you take, for example, South Korea, which is, I mean, you can argue to what extent South Korea is actually a democracy because of its history of authoritarianism yeah. in the past. But you still, you still see they have to implement these authoritarian measures to tackle something, some... Um, some crisis like this that was this coming uh, inside their country, even inside their country or outside their country, any internal and external threat that they want to tackle, they have to use this very strict um, measures that intervene with uh, privacy, intervene with uh, people's freedoms and stuff like that. Yeah. And this is very big call, 
I, I'm honestly, I guess we still need time to process this in democratic societies. Um, but basically, you see, every country that wants to tackle this, like France, it, it has to sacrifice something. It has to sacrifice its freedoms, its yes. rights to, to do something and to protect vulnerable, of course. Yeah, we already, even though we still theoretically live in democratic states, but the measures that are employed... They might as well be, you know, just in a totalitarian state. Curfews, that's basically what we have. We cannot leave home. Uh, elections are getting postponed all over Europe. So, yeah. you know, this extends the terms of the current people in power. So those uh, practices, you cannot really call them democratic. So we already kind of move away from the democratic society. Yeah, and this this is a very, very true. That's what I feel. And you couldn't. I mean, they they still see differences, you know, in approach, because, say, for example, in Germany, you don't really see this much state still in, involved in this crisis. What they say so, just basically try to convince people really stay at home because they say it's so important, and they always say appeal to democracy, and they say it's so hard for us to unite and you know to do something together in this in this sense, but we can manage this. Um, but absolutely yes, I guess um, this, and you see in how China gonna, for example, benefit from its own measures, uh, not democratic measures, but how gonna benefit in terms of economy because now it kind of like uh, it passed this this acute um, stage in this crisis, and now it can basically continue to develop economically. I mean, you know, all this chaos that's happening in other parts of the world, for example. Yeah, I guess you are right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, what other things have you noticed uh, in this days of quarantine and <laughs> self-isolation? Yeah, so, well, I think this is the... We have reached... Uh, the point in history that basically this will be the event that we all tell our grandchildren about, just like our grandparents will tell us about World War II. I think this will be what we will be talking about when we're old and grumpy. Yeah. And we just have to hope that we live long enough to see this because this might totally overhaul the world as we know it. Yeah, I guess it's definitely this watershed moment in history when you're going to tell okay, we used to have a world, you know, I mean, you're not going to say about historical periodization and stuff, you're going to say something like, there was a world until 2020, and you know, this pandemic, and then there was a world like after this pandemic. This is something like, uh, this is, I guess for me, it sounds that how historians going to uh, assess this moment in history, um, like due to the many, many, many reasons, but in general, just because it's such a like massive and huge event, and, and yes, let's see uh, how it. I think I think we can also uh, discuss one more thing uh, that I know we have different opinions about, which might be yeah. interesting. It's the future of the European Union. Yeah. After the crisis, what do you think will happen? Oh, this is so hard for me to tell. But I guess the European Union suffers the most as institution because they, I guess there was uh, I I couldn't recall any moments in history when the European Union looked like so weak and so kind of 
scrambled and it doesn't really know what's its role you know, in, in this crisis. Uh, it basically, you know, people send money there. You, I mean, people who are European citizens, you send uh, your taxes, especially like Germans, for example, and like other from other countries that contribute the most. And there is like a legitimate question: What do we need this for? I mean, yes, we have like kind of open markets. I mean, you can have open markets without European Union. Definitely, this is not a big deal. But what's the, what's what's the fate of this institution? Because either you need to somehow reform it, or you're going to see more and more countries leaving the EU. This is inevi so inevitable. What what do you think will happen? Will more countries leave the EU, or will they want to reform the EU? I guess first of all, not so many countries uh, would like. I, I guess um, uh, it, it depends. I guess it's hard for me to tell now, but. I would say you're gonna see the rise of like like anti-EU populism in Italy after the crisis. I don't think Italy, uh, to any extent, because it's such a big crisis in healthcare system in Italy, and it, it it feels so vulnerable right now. And the fact that you know it's the part of this elitist club of EU countries, and it's one of the founding countries of EU, and it's still, I guess it it thinks so. It it didn't receive any type of sufficient help from the European Union only demonstrates into people, you know, there's like 30%, 35% of people who vote for League, you know, this um, League of uh, North or something like this, like uh, this Matteo Salvini party, mm -hmm. and then they're just going to say, yeah, I mean, he was actually right, you know, they don't help us and we don't need them. I mean, we can still yeah. have, we can discuss with them how we're going to survive together and how we're going to have probably open markets, but you know, EU, we don't need this. Well, for, 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 for what sake we need the EU? If, you know, we pay taxes, we have the same currency, but we don't receive any kind of help from European and, Union. And in the meantime, they do receive help from China. Yeah, this is another question. And not only not only Italy, but all, uh, all other countries in Europe, in Eastern yeah. Europe. Yeah, but I also well, I think it's important to note that the... EU actually gives funds for tackling the virus because this is basically in the current legal form. This is all the EU can do. They can basically just give money. So what they did is they gave around like eight billion euros to yeah. uh, support uh, to support little enterprises, I think, and around thirty billion for medical equipment and such stuff. So it isn't like the EU is doing nothing, mm -hmm. but it just cannot do more. This is my mm -hmm. argument. Okay, yeah, but I also think EU is such an institution that it couldn't... Um, so no one would, you know, grant any kind of authority to the EU. It should stand on its own and there should be enough uh, talented politicians to actually articulate this European position. That's also a thing because you will never have, you know, a bunch of countries gathering together and saying, oh, let's grant some more sovereignty to the EU and let's make a EU kind of, uh, you know, United State. But that should be uh, the part of EU, I mean, EU officials' job to actually ar articulate their position. Because what I saw in von der Leyen, she was, like, she disappeared during this crisis. She basically, oh, yeah, I, she totally I, haven't, I haven't seen any kind of news uh, from her and from her office and yeah the only thing she did is announce closing the EU borders basically yeah and she, once it's all she Macron did, did yeah. already like you know Macron announced and then she said oh yeah we are closing it and that yeah. was something you know something I mean maybe you need to have people like Macron because definitely Macron gonna uh, after his 
Korea and France. He's gonna he's gonna try to have this Korean European institutions. You need some people with this kind of enough, enough like sufficient power, of course, because maybe former uh, Minister of Defense uh, of Germany is not sufficient kind of position to have this. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, she was under Merkel, and every uh, like what she used to do, she just uh, had some task and uh, she had to pull them off. Yeah, but she wasn't a leader, she was an yeah. employee. Uh, but maybe just a question of uh, you need some other leaders, but then you have another question. On the other hand, people not agreeing with each other because not so many countries would like to see a strong leader in the head of the EU. And yeah, this is very, very difficult because it's, you know, 27 countries, it's hard, it's hard, for, it's hard to make them think, uh, to, to, um, it's hard for them to be on the same page, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, this is totally thing. true. So this is what Macron, why Macron does not want to admit more countries into the EU, right? Yeah, he wants first to uh, the existing EU countries to agree on reforms and then starts uh, admitting new members because it will get harder and harder to do reforms if you admit more people. Oh yeah, so I I think it's a, it's. It should be reformed, and after this crisis, maybe it's time for Sula von der Leyen also to step down. I don't know, because it's in such a big event, I guess all this uh, Green New Deal, uh, uh, this Green New Deal agenda is just useless after this, because you, you had such a big crisis. I mean, when, when we're going to talk, like, I guess in six months or something, like eight months, you're going to assess uh, the EU the EU position and the EU job in this crisis, like just the EU, how how it try to curb it, how it try to manage it, and you're gonna like uh, fairly say it was useless. So you need to do something. You need to have some reforms, and of course you 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 have to do this. Otherwise, more and more countries like Great Britain are gonna say, well, we don't really need the EU anymore because the EU doesn't really like need us. You know, we just like we just like yeah. serve as open markets for them. But what we're gonna get um, for this? Yeah, in that exchange. Is true. And, you know, uh, I'll maybe make an um, analogy from history. Don't you think that after the crisis we'll see something like uh, the situation in the U.S. before the Constitution? So when there was the Articles of Confederation and people were arguing this is too little because the federal government cannot do anything. Maybe people uh... would be like, okay, we, know, we need to put reforms that the EU can actually do something when a crisis hits the entirety of the European Union. But I guess I would still insist on this difference that the EU, it's, it's this new type of institution that, you know, a lot of people still couldn't understand what it is. And it has to evolve by its own powers and has to articulate its own position. It's not like anyone going to grant more powers to the EU. But it's more the EU job to actually say what what is United Europe, what is, I mean, everyone knows what kind of like shared values Europe has. But in terms of like policy agenda, it should come up with better solution and it should articulate them just better. And of course, you should have some kind of special, maybe try to try to grant you some special powers when it it's in a crisis. But it's always, it's always, I still blame maybe Ursula von der Leyen for this because she she's weak in this situation. She's really weak and... Yes, I agree. The a leader of the EU could have used this situation to actually build the the image of the EU as a strong institution that yeah. actually does something. Even if she didn't have the legal 
uh, ways to do this, but just by media appearances and appeals to the EU citizens, she could build a yeah. strong position, but she does not do that. Yeah, that's true. But, uh, okay, that's uh, that's a sad news, I guess, for everyone who who tries to think in EU, kind of EU common thinking agenda. Yeah, but what we can do, this is this is the reality. But it also shows that uh, you have to change EU, and it's also common efforts, and uh, a lot of things need to be done, so to speak. Yep, agreed. So I guess uh, we discussed uh, all topics that we wanted to. I guess to. we did, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, let's just wish um, everyone a nice quarantine, so to speak. Yeah, have fun at home. Do not leave if you don't have to. Yeah, social distancing and stuff. And enjoy your life. Enjoy your life under lockdown. Yeah, Goodbye. see you.